Good morning. We are returning to our Sermon on the Mount series, and, and today the title of the message is A Radical Call to Fulfill the Law. Because we are at the juncture, is another division, a section into the Sermon on the Mount. I want to start with a, a just brief overview. We started with Jesus coming up on the mount and sitting down, symbolizing that the Jewish rabbis would begin to teach seriously as he's sitting down and open his mouth. And starting with verse 3, the eight Beatitudes were the beginning of his sermon. These, these eight Beatitudes are not the commands for us to try to do it in order to be saved. But this, these are the portraits of a true believer and kingdom citizen. In some sense, the basis of entire sermon. It is about character. The Christian righteousness comes from inside out not outside in. You don't clean the outside first, hoping that your heart could be clean. You work on your heart by surrendering, by being keenly aware of your spiritual bankruptcy, by humbling yourself, not only to God, but to others through meekness. And through that process of emptiness, we become aware of the true hunger. We begin to hunger for righteous, righteousness. And God begins to fill us, and the feeling process ends with even willingness to receive suffering and persecution for righteousness' sake. That's Christian character. Let's remember that. They, uh, on the tip of the iceberg, these are the, the external practices and religious activities we might do. And the big chunk of the real Christian life is on the Christian character. And from Christian character, saltiness and our light in the world comes out, which is our Christian influence. And today we begin with actual doing, as a Christian righteousness in doing. And even in this doing, there are many misunderstandings from this passage. And so in light of that, today's passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, is critical to understand the rest of the chapter 5, all the way to verse 48. So let me begin with uh, the idea of Scripture in Jewish culture in Jesus' days. And obviously, they had Old Testament only. But often, they would refer to it, the law and the prophets. The law meant 
Torah or Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, and the prophets of the rest of the literatures. And the prophets actually regurgitate the teachings of Pentateuch and charge, and thus say at the Lord, and become mouthpiece of God to Israelites on that, in that context. And today, Jesus actually uh, deals with chap, uh, verses 7 through 18. is about Jesus' perspective about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And verse 19 through 20, from which he gives charge. Verse 19 begins with therefore. The therefore is based on 17 and 18. And then 19 and 20, we could title it Christians and the Law, or Christians and the Old Testament. So let's begin with Christians, Christ and the Law. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you see that? First one that he says is, I did not come to abolish, destroy. This is a demolition language. The law. And then he would refer to it, the law or the prophets. He refers to the entire Old Testament scripture. Why is he addressing this? Because by this time, Jesus was, Jesus was already known as a controversial teacher. In other passages, we remember Jesus addressing his teaching instead of the like Pharisees or scribes that he will say, truly, truly, I say to you. So basically, he repeats, amen, amen, and I say to you. That has the form of uh, self-authority. Where is, is this guy teaching from? And then religious leaders were just terrified about people's attentiveness to his authority. He teaches none, none like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with such an authority. Why? Because he is the author of the law himself. In another, another sense, not only his teaching, but in practices, in Sabbath, he would heal the sick person. And then the Pharisees and the uh, chief priests will watch that and got you. You're not supposed to work on Sabbath. What in the world are you doing? And Jesus will said, Sabbath is made for men, not men for Sabbath. So in, in some sense, Jesus sounded like he's 
is bring seemingly different teaching than what was going on in the law, the teachings of the law. But the, this difference in Jesus' attitude toward Old Testament law was not because Jesus was rejecting the Old Testament law. Far from it. He was actually embracing and upholding true meaning in the spirit of the law. He goes on further. And he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Fulfill the Old Testament. In what sense? Number one, Jesus fulfilled the prophetic teachings of Old Testament. Why is that? The Old Testament is about himself. And the starting with the uh, Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, tabernacles and the sacrifices, high priest, the Lamb of God, all that was a foreshadow of coming Jesus. Jesus was actually concealed in Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed there. The Old Testament is a shadow, of course. Shadow, you could tell a little bit about a person's movement, but if, when the real person comes, you pay attention to the real person. But Jesus has fulfilled, as a matter of fact, and not only his birth and his suffering, his death was prophesied, and he has fulfilled those Old Testament scriptures. And in terms of ceremonial law, the moment Jesus was hung on the cross and took the last breath, the shadow of what lamb, sacrificial lamb, pointed to, Jesus himself died for once for all, for the sins of the earth, sins of the all sinners. That moment, all the ceremonial law had come to a screeching halt, no longer necessary. Uh, civil law, or the people, the, for the people of Israelites in that wilderness, and we, we learned from the Exodus study, remember, Book of Covenant? The civil judicial law is no longer necessary. For the New Testament believers. But what's going on here? Even in the, our days. There are people. Who would disregard Old Testament as. Outdated. Or the, the New Testament's grace is so much. Looks different that as if. Old Testament God is some other God. Not at all. So what, what is really, really laid out here is that Jesus is pointing to God's moral law is reflection of his character, his father's character, 
son's character, spirit's character. And that character is immutable, never changing from age to age. So in his three office, Jesus was prophet and priest and king. And he fulfilled the requirements of Old Testament laws and satisfied the demands of the high standard of law, being perfect as God is perfect. And do you know that? Grace comes because Jesus is the one who lived out perfect righteous life, that he can die for sinners like you and me, and that he can give his righteousness as a righteousness unto us, imputed righteousness. That's the grace. But Jesus is saying, I came not to destroy the law, but fulfill by his life, and then he will even reveal more uh, Jesus fulfilled the moral teaching of the Old Testament by drawing out its radical implication. Verse 20, Jesus talks about, unless your righteousness is greater than that of Pharisees, that's an incredible statement. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why? In those days, the most revered religious people Pharisees are not the, the offices or, or by uh, any occupation, but it's a movement. They were devoted to the law, keeping the law. And then I, I, wanna, I don't want to go over there too early, but let me just say that Jesus says, not against the Old Testament law, but distortion of oral tradition of Pharisees and scribes of the law. And there's a motivation by within why they had to distort it. Actually, Jesus' word is uh, relaxes, lower the standard. There's a reason for that. But Jesus is actually bringing up in the, the rest of the chapter 5 is six examples. And starts all like this. You have heard that it was said to the people of old times. But I say to you. So Jesus is saying that Moses has given this law, but I'm giving you another law. No. Jesus is saying, you have heard things like this. But actually, I'm going to give you the true light into it, true meaning and the spirit of God's moral law. There's there six examples. starts with about murder and anger. You have heard at verse 21, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, See if you could see the common thread in the distortion of oral teaching there. 
Example number two, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you. And most of us know what Jesus is bringing up. Anger and lust. And Jesus says that that is actually the spirit of the law. It's simply called it's externalism. They wanted to clean up the outside. Externally clean. So in order for them to clean an outside, external, what is visible, what matters only. And Jesus says, revealing God's character, the point of that moral law is this. Number three example, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you. Example number four, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those who of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you. Example number five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you. Last example in 6. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you. Some of them. And truly externalism. So slight distortion is there. But truth is there. Reflection of real law is there. For example. You shall love your neighbor. Is one of the twofold greatest commitment commandment Jesus said, right? And the Old Testament law is summarized in love for God in this way, love God, love for God and love for your neighbor. But by adding hate your enemy, you see what's going on. It's doable now. It's 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 uh, externally clean for them. They have a right to hate those people they don't like. And they have, they have a way to categorize neighbor in such a way it becomes so doable for them. They're all ethnic group, the people who are abiding in law, and that anyone beyond that, beyond that boundary, they have an entitlement to hate. So, chapter 5, as we're going into one at a time, we're going to actually uh, look at the spirit of the law and not only Old Testament but New Testament believers need to uphold this God's moral law and deals with our heart issues against again. The heart righteousness inside out. So next week, be ready. We're going to talk about murder. But it's going to be applicable to each one of us. Because it's a heart issue of anger. You never carried out. But Jesus is saying, that's the equivalent of a murder.
just to reiterate that it is a distortion of actual moral teaching of Old Testament, uh, not the law itself. Jesus was not opposing the Old Testament law. A couple of things here. He was not contradicting the Old Testament. If he did, he would have said, even chapter 4 he says that, right? It is written, when he was uh, answering the temptations of the evil one, the Satan, in the desert in 40 days, he would always reply to, it is written. And what was written was this, but it, you have heard it, it was said. Um, to a layperson back then, it, it, I, it is so confusing to them. You know, you know why? Because what is written in Scripture, the teachers of the law would expound. The most people do not have the Scripture themselves in the, in the temple and synagogue. And then as they gather together, they will expound. But because of these religious leaders and Pharisees and scribes came up with the ideas, additional laws, in some sense it looks more difficult. Whether, um, whether you could walk a throne, a stone away, in other words, a throw when you throw a stone that distance you could walk. Um, but they will come up with the meticulous ideas. Even to do this day, we know that some of our very Jewish Orthodox people cannot plug in a refrigerator. But they will knock on Gentile neighbor's door and ask them, to, could you plug it in? Because it's a sin to them to, to break the Sabbath law. And the little tiny details of that. And obviously, when Jesus was healing, and the Jesus' disciples were eating corns in the field, plugging out, plugging out, they're furious. Why are they furious? So once again, the people who are lowering the standard and keeping them as you're keeping that manageable, there's a sense of self-righteousness. Self-confidence builds up within them. So anyone who doesn't meet up the standard, they're judgmental. So first of all, Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. One more. Jesus affirmed the enduring supreme authority of the Old Testament. Of the Old Testament. Because he is himself the author and he has the authority of the law and the, and the prophets. Because he himself is the focus and the subject of Old and New Testament. And Old Concealed Christ, 
the messianic hope was given and throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the revealed Christ and Messiah, a Savior, not just for the Gen- not just for the Jewish, but the whole world. By grace and grace alone, through faith, faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone. So let's go to Christian and the law this time, verses 19 and 20. In light of what's been said, Jesus said, verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do same, to do, to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There are three things at least in this passage. Number one is a Jesus' radical view on the whole counsel of God. Okay, listen to this. For those of us in the New Testament believers, to begin with, New Testament is relatively easier to understand. And there are some of many favorite passages that you, you could find. One of the reasons why we should never neglect the Old Testament including the parts, very difficult parts, and Lamentation, Jeremiah, Book of Isaiah, uh, Leviticus. We should never treat the Bible like a refrigerator. You open it, and you look for what you want. I like Apple. So at the bottom drawer, there's always apples. I take the apple. I don't like celery. Any kind of vegetable, I usually don't like. Close the door. There is reason for Jesus saying that I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And if we are Jesus follower, Christ follower, the whole council we are to embrace. We are, we are to submit to the whole council. And even teaching of the church. And it's hard when we continue to go to quiet time in, in uh, Old Testament and New Testament, back and forth. And then as we're going through the book of Exodus, oh, it's been, we've been through some tough part, didn't we? Haven't we so far? But the whole council is precious to Jesus. It ought to be precious to us. 
to ignore or neglect any part of the whole counsel of God would mean go against Christ's view on the scripture. Second, Jesus' radical charge to fulfill the law is implied in verse 19 and explicitly command in verse 20. And it will say, notice that even the being smallest uh, iota is a Greek, the smallest letter of Greek, or usually referred to Hebrew Hebrew letter Yod. Y-O-D. It's like our equivalent of apostrophe. And Jesus is saying, none of these will pass away. And then um, we have a disgruntled uh, humanistic and liberal theologians and then even the culturally savvy Christians come around and said, come on. Things changed. Especially the Old Testament is outed. Look at all those violence. Look at all this angry God. Look at all these. We just need to do away. And love is the only law that we, we ought to uphold. And that's exactly what UAZ is teaching. And Christians are following to that. We are Christ followers, brothers and sisters. I'm not a prophet or son of prophet. I'm going to predict this for our church and the churches around us. The way we see, perceive the scripture and the way we value scripture as not only supreme authority, but critical, most critical role of guidance in our lives, even compared to general truth. All truth is God's truth, yes. Psychology, sociology, nothing wrong with that. But filtered through the supreme authority, and we discern through God's teaching, then we could gain so much from TED Talks. And you could go to conferences and pragmatic, it's very innovative conference. Yes, those are good. But what comes first and what comes a screening, discernment, and filtering system from all wisdom is God's. You are looking at a pastor who are mixed with ideas. And in my previous ministry, my bookshelves are full of literatures about organizational structure development. For fun, on my day off, I, I read management books, leadership literatures. I like making things structured so that people go through it. Whoa, organizational development is my thing. However, like a frog in a kettle being slowly heated up, we could go through this 
and cultural amalgamation. We're getting mixed into the worldly human wisdom with the God's wisdom. And comes out as it sounds much quicker and smarter and savvy to look at wisdom literature from management books and leadership books or self-help books. Very, very helpful. Instantaneously helpful. And scripture. Then what happens is we begin to set aside Bible as seemingly we still think that God's word but on day-to-day basis I scribe to this author and this expert on parenting, on education, on family, on marriage. So what is my prediction? My prediction is if we uphold the supreme authority and the scripture guidance as our first and foremost preceding guidance, our church will remain spiritually vital. Our church will be centered on what God desires. There will be a persecution. There will be a ridicule and mocking. Oh, do you still believe that? But another prediction, sad prediction is the churches in America, including us, we slip into that slippery slope of believing the Bible is not that relevant anymore and we need to become, update our doctrinal statement or belief statement and day-to-day guidance into culturally savvy things. The Christ will be devoted in church. The authority of scripture will be non-existent in the future. And therefore, in, in, in the long run, you will not be able to dis- differentiate New Agers and Oprah Winfrey followers from the Christ followers. But notice that in terms of teaching-wise, this is not a question on the entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mentioned in verse 20. That is a separate question. But if you teach them, and it relaxes them, the high standard of the law, and if you lower the standard of holiness, and you teach them, you will be the least in the kingdom and if you uphold and teach them teach others that you will be great and God's uh, opinion is clear on that right but listen to this the Jesus radical demand in verse 19 I mean verse 20 is a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees and there were meticulous about keeping the law so they kept accounting and calculated and 248 commandments 
and 365 prohibitions, making altogether 613 rules and regulations together. Whoa. For, for a typical person, once again, layperson's point of view, Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Pharisees and scribes, that's impossible, God. That's impossible, Christ. But in reality, they made it easy. Because it, everything was more of a doable way of lowering the standard rather than the heart and the spirit of the law, which is a heart issue. You could hate the person who's not like you and saying that he's not my neighbor and I could hate him with my guts. But completely go against God's character. I could rationalize the way that I could justify my divorce because of the certificate would go completely against God's heart and design for the sanctity of marriage. I have anger, but I go to my anger management class. As long as I don't stab anyone, I don't shoot anyone, like go postal anyone. I'm okay. I'm the only human goes right against the heart and the spirit of God's character. So, um, it points to the inward heart righteousness and it is only possible with new heart and new birth. When John, uh, when John uh, John 3, when Nicodemus was visiting at night, and Jesus' words is, unless you're born again, born from above, referring to the Holy Spirit's birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, maybe if I am... Um, all about just a intellectual exercise. We could stop here. But the, our goal is a scripture guidance. We actually need to submit and obey. And here are three application things. that I, The question that I'm asking is, what implication does Jesus' radical call have for us in today's world? Number one is we are to avoid antinomianism. Antinomian is a fancy word for Anti, against, nomas is meaning the law, against law. In other words, lawlessness. Why? Based on the people who are saying Romans 6, 14 and Romans 10, 4, 10, 4 example, Christ is the end of the law to those of us who are being righteous in faith, by faith. And basically saying, it's null now. Because of grace, we don't have to keep the law. Instead of moral law, God's character, uh, civil law, 
and ceremonial law done away because of Christ's fulfillment of that, entire Old Testament was done away. We are not to do that. In one sense, you could clarify, we are not under the law of justification. For God's acceptance, we are not under that, the law of justification. We're not being justified because we keep the law. Because there's no way we could keep the law perfectly. But we are under the law of sanctification. Being more sanctified, being holier, as Christ says, is holy. It was Martin Luther during Reformation days. He he said, The law which condemns us drives us to Christ to be justified. But when Christ justified us, he sends us back to the law in order to be sanctified. 2nd, law, spirit, heart, and righteousness all belong together. Ezekiel, for example, 36 27 God says, my spirit is within you. That's the new covenant, right? Holy Spirit will pour out into the New Testament believers like you and me. And then Jeremiah 31, 33, my law is within you. Not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of your, tablets of your heart. God's desire, holy desire, character will be written. That's the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's why we get tempted. We got prompted and convicted. And one way to tell you're truly saved is if you continually sin and go against God's will, if you're not convicted, you don't have that conviction of the Holy Spirit. You have all the reason to doubt about your salvation. Thirdly, the work of Christ on the cross and the work of Spirit within every believer are for obedience to God's moral laws. Before I uh, explain a bit about Romans 8 passage, think about Ephesians, famous passage in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We tend to stop there, but by grace, through faith, you have been saved, not by works. Up until now, it's so good, right? But if we stop at verse 9, so that no one can boast, we don't miss, we don't get the goal of, the purpose of salvation. Verse 10 says, you are God's workmanship, created for good works. So our good works, not for meriting salvation, but because of salvation, in gratitude, through gratitude, we are living out the fruit of our salvation. In Romans 8, verse 32 3 to 4, says this For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, in other words, in our own human will, we cannot keep the law. For God has done what the law, weakened by the spirit, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
but by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ has saved us and God has given us Holy Spirit so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, now we can obey God's moral law. Second, on the other side, we are to avoid legalism, which is attempt at salvation by merit of keeping the law. Uh, the, the first one might be much more glaringly important in that we ought to discern that we don't become hyper-grace church and hyper-grace Christians who would actually adhere to antinomianism. But if you get serious, anyone who is serious about living a Christian life, a very faithful church life, we ought to be very careful about this legalism. Why? Because when we become consumed by our own merit of living out the legal requirements, we become easily self-righteous, holier than thou. We look down other people just because certain things that we don't do and just because certain things that we do on a regular basis. The question that I ask myself, I would encourage others in our church to ask is this, am I becoming self-righteous or am I becoming self-righteous and self-confident or am I becoming more keenly aware of my spiritual bankruptcy? Blessed are the poor who are poor in spirit. The second question is, am I becoming more like Pharisees who's concerned about the way that we, I keep and trying to manage my externalism? Or am I becoming more like Christ? That our heart is inside out being transformed. And third and last, and it, it is an um, obvious conclusion, but I need to reiterate, so that we become more action-oriented uh, as a study, uh, the result of this study. We are to pursue heart righteousness by keeping the true meaning and the spirit of God's moral laws. The three things really qu quickly. It requires us our high view of God's moral law as a supreme authority and daily role of a scripture. It also requires a turning from rationalization from facing to facing the brokenness in our hearts. Why do I say that? If we keep concerned about on the visual le level, even the pastors, 
even the people who are in full-time missionary work can do evil things, such evil, wicked things, and justify it, rationalize it. That's why people fall. That's why the evil one's so good at knocking those people who are continually impacting others. And even for each one of us. And know that your heart is wicked and you could rationalize on the surface. The question that we should ask is, what's broken inside of me? Search me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me, Lord. And when that is touched by the Holy Spirit, there is a true joy and peace and spiritual vitality. And finally, it requires our intention to pursue holiness in our everyday life by living according to God's word. And I'm going to conclude with this Jace Ryle in 1839 is a bishop of a Church of England. And Jace Ryle's uh, work is available online. And I, many of them is so powerful and so free. So you could read that. And I, I was just grabbed by, grappled by his writing on this. He's writing about chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. He calls it expositional thoughts. And Matthew, he writes, In the last place, let us beware, beware of supposing that the gospel has lowered the standard of personal holiness and that the Christian is not intended to be as strict and particular about his daily life as the Jew. This is an immense mistake but one that is unhappily very common. So far from this being the case, the sanctification of the New Testament saint ought to exceed that of, whom, of, of him who has nothing but the Old Testament for his guide. The more light we have, the more we ought to love God. The more clearly we see our own complete and full forgiveness, forgiveness in Christ, the more heartily ought we to work for His glory. We know that it cost to redeem us far better than the Old Testament saints did. We have read what happened in Gethsemane on, on Calvary, and they only saw it dimly and indistinctly as a thing yet to come. May we never forget our obligations. The Christian who is content with a low standard of personal holiness has got so much to learn. I want to charge each one of us. Our church encourage you and challenge you. When Christ is in our heart, 
He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. And we depend on the scripture guidance and depend on the Spirit. The pursuit of holiness is full of joy. Not a drudgery, not an obligation. Because we, in it, we see Christ-likeness, which is our goal of our pursuit and our spiritual journey. In so doing, we become salt and light. Radically, counterculturally different from the people of this world. And sadly, from the people of this world's churches as well. May God encourage us, comfort us as we pursue this personal holiness in this year. 2016. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your scripture is so clear and powerful than any other uh, two-edged sword. It really penetrates our hearts. We pray for our church and pray for every Christ follower in this room that you will reveal your desire gently, that we may see the joy of pursuing the whole counsel of God. We do pray, along with the psalmist, that we would become like a tree planted by the streams of water, and its leaf does not wither, And it bears fruit in its own season. And teach us to delight in your word, in the whole counsel of God. And teach us to be transformed by it. Not through the legalism, not through the antinomianism, but through very simple obedience through the heart transformation in each day. We thank you and love you. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.